This episode is brought to you by E3, the champion formula. So if you are looking for a nutrition aid for endurance events, you might want to check out E3. E3 is a Perth-based business, and I have personally used E3 whilst running ultramarathons. I've used this on the Ultra Trail Australia 100k race. I've used this during the Leadville 100 miler, and I've also been using it for the last couple of years during long distance swims. Now, for those of you who may have had E3 before, it's back and back with a bang. We have a discount code for you today as well if you would like to avail of this for Sleep for Performance listeners. The discount code is WANS0001. Now this will give you 5% off your one kilo bag of E3, the champion formula. This discount, or the money's collected from this discount, goes straight to the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre here in Perth, Western Australia. You may remember a number of months ago, I had Beck Johnson on from the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre. So all of the money raised from these discounts goes straight to that centre. So that's a great organisation if you'd like to support them. So that's E3, the champion formula. Now, if you want to get your hands on a bag of that E3, you can head over to Fuel for Sport. That's the number four sport, like Sleep for Performance where you can order your bag today and apply that discount code. So that's fuelforsport.com.au and the guys over there will sort you out with a couple of bags of this and have it delivered to your home, to your office or wherever you hang out during the day. And um, if you scroll down there, you might want to have a look because I've just found out today that uh, my ugly mug is sitting on the E3 Champion Formula website. So, um, yeah. There you go. So check out E3 Champion Formula and apply that discount code. That's W-A-N-S-0-0-0-1 and get your 5% off your one kilo bag today. Exercise and diet are well established in society as two pillars for optimizing our health. However, both are supported by a foundation that is often forgotten, yet even more integral to our health, namely sleep. The Sleep Recovery Specialist course is an innovative online education experience that provides an in-depth knowledge base, important sleep assessment tools, and a wide range of effective strategies for supporting clients to improve their sleep habits and behaviors. Improve your sense of happiness and well-being, daily energy and alertness, recovery from physical training, reduce risk of obesity and diabetes, and reduce your appetite and sweet cravings. Achieve all of this and more for further information and to enroll online, please visit www.nordicfitnesseducationblog.com. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. In this episode of Sleep for Performance Radio, I talk to my good friend Michael Gradner, PhD, MTR, CBSM, FAASM. There is more letters after Michael's name than there is in the alphabet, which means he's probably well qualified to talk about the area we're talking about today which is around sleep and mental health and performance in elite athletes. Now, Michael is a great guy. Um, Interesting story here with Michael. I met Michael on Twitter a number of years ago. So Twitter can be used for good. It's not always a cesspit of crazy comments. You can actually find some interesting people on Twitter. And as I say, and we discussed this in the episode, choose your own adventure in Twitter and you can meet some really um, knowledgeable and nice people on there. So Dr. Michael Gradner is the Director of Sleep and Health Research Program 
and he's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson, and that's in the USA. And if you guys that have uh, watched an officer and gentleman, you might have a few uh, quotes there coming to mind. He is a board he is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine. His research interests and projects include working with the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, the National Institute for Environmental Health Science, and one study focused on sleep patterns and how they relate to cardiometabolic disease risk and neurocognitive function. Now, where myself and Michael have kind of overlapped or met is in the area of sleep and performance and in mental health as well. Michael has been doing some work recently with the uh, Olympic Committee on mental health and some of his other research outside of athletes has been looking at the potential of sleep health for suicide prevention. Um, Myself and Michael recently spoke at the World Sleep Conference in Vancouver back in early September of this year where Michael kindly invited me to speak as part of a symposium where we were focused on sleep and athletic performance. And it was a really interesting uh, symposium, and we speak about that in the episode as well. Okay, so check out the show notes if you want to get in contact with Michael Gradner. This is a really interesting episode, Sleep, Mental Health and Athletes. I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you would like to give us some feedback, hit us up on sleepforperformance.com.au. Email me, Ian Dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au. And if you would like, or if you have the time, please head over to iTunes and give us a review, good, bad or ugly. Um, and obviously, if it's bad, let us know what we're doing wrong so we can try to improve it. Okay, into the episode. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by Associate Professor Michael Gradner. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So, Michael, we met a few weeks ago for the first time in Vancouver, Canada, although it was quite brief. Uh, you were quite a busy man in demand. First time in person. First time in person, yeah. Um, we've been Twitter. Um, what, what, what have I been saying recently to a few people? We're Twitter alumni. <laughs> 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 now, I want to make a statement here on Twitter. A lot of people say that Twitter is bad and it's a cesspit. What I said to people is, choose your own adventure on Twitter. If you don't like somebody, unfollow them. If they're annoying you, block them. Follow the people you like. Interact with the people who are good. And just get on with it. And if you use Twitter for good, it can be a great tool. And this is where I met people like yourself, Michael, Mita Singh, Brendan Duffy, and more and more. And we all caught up in Vancouver. And it was absolutely brilliant. So Twitter can do some good in the world. Yeah. So, Michael, for the for the people who don't know you and weren't in Vancouver with me at the same time, can you give us a quick overview of who you are and uh, where you're from originally before you uh, went on your university days? Sure. So, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. My interest is in sleep and health in the real world. So that that's my interest. Um, my research is focused on how sleep impacts health and functioning, particularly in real-world settings in the population, and also what are the social, behavioral, and environmental determinants of sleep? How do we sleep in the real world? And then how can we use that information to help people sleep better? Um, And part of that work has looked at going into communities. Part of it's been working with athletes. Part of it's been working with a lot of different types of groups. So right now I'm at at the University of Arizona. I run the sleep and health research program here. I also run a behavioral sleep medicine clinic here where we see patients with with sleep problems. Um, 
So you're asking sort of where I'm from originally. So I'm originally from uh, Northeast U.S., originally from outside of New York. Um, and that's, that's, you know, they call it the city that never sleeps, and it's a very intense place. Um, but I've lived in a bunch of different places, whether, you know, I went to college in Rochester, New York, where they don't have sunlight for part of the year, apparently. Um, then then uh, apparently was done with the winter, so went to grad school in San Diego, um, and then uh, went back to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia for a postdoc and, and my first faculty position, and then uh, came out here to Tucson, where I'm enjoying the sunshine. Mm, so you moved around quite a lot in the U.S. Did you ever have any desire to uh, do an overseas appointment and come and see us here in places like Australia, or maybe even go to Europe? So I, I, I love visiting places. Um, as you know from for, from interactions online, I, I really I like people. I like interacting with people, and I like um, I like understanding more about how how people live in, in the real world. And, and I love visiting different places and, and seeing how, you know, how life is in different places and, and how people get on with themselves and, and, and culture and food and, and the environment. I don't know. I just, I, I feel like the world is, is a very big place, but it's also a very small place where it's nice <laughs> to have friends all over. Yeah, yeah. And it's nice to go home as well, I think, as well, at the end of the day. It's nice to go away, but it's it's even nice to it's, yeah, it's great you to know, especially home, especially when work. it's uh Yeah, especially when it's like middle of November and we had a high of eighty degrees today and the sun is out, you know what, I'll take it. Yeah. That's uh so uh, you know, as everybody knows I'm best here in Perth, although I've been Irish originally. Um <laughs> currently at the moment, um my dad is here from Ireland and it's his first time here. Oh, like uh, 31 degrees so in Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, probably up around the high 80s to 90, maybe more. And, uh, you know, he's here and it's quite hot and it's it's not even summer yet. It's like the last month of spring. And he's like, oh, my God, the heat. <laughs> he goes, I love it. I love it, <laughs> well, but it's killing me. <laughs> coming from there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. especially going from there. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's he's struggling at the moment, uh, the moment with the heat, but he's... Uh, He's absolutely loving it, and he was saying, "Yeah, why would you ever go home when it's like this the whole time?" So, <laughs> so <laughs> right, similar, similar to Arizona, yeah, we get pretty mild winters. So, yeah. So, so Michael, why did you, or was this? Why did you get into this sort of area of sleep? Because what's interesting about sleep is there's no kind of direct path into sleep. There's no undergrad in sleep. Yeah, we're not running around a high school going, "Oh, someday I'm going to be a sleep scientist." You know, it's mainly an astronaut, an engineer, a, a firefighter, a cop, or something like that nobody nobody ever wants to be a sleep scientist as a kid um, and even a lot of adults so, so, go what are you doing so what made you get interested in, in that yeah funny enough that was me um so when i was when when i was a kid i was i for some odd reason i thought the most interesting thing in the world was dreams and i thought i i so when i was in high school i um my high school job was working at the mall bookstore and every time we got a book in that had something to do with sleep or dreams, I would always read it because I thought it was the, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I didn't know it was a job you could have, but I thought it was just the coolest thing to learn about. And then, um, when I was in college, I was a sophomore in college and one of my friends, she was like, Oh, uh, I got a job at the sleep lab on campus. And I'm like, wait, we have a sleep lab on campus. How did I not know this? And they're like, oh yeah, no, it's at the medical center across the way. 
And I'm like, can I see it? I've never seen a sleep lab before. I've just read about them. And so, and, and she's like, oh yeah. And the guy who uh, is one of the people who runs it, he's going to be teaching a course next semester for the first time. I'm like, I totally have to take that course. So I do. And uh, this was Michael Perlis's undergraduate sleep course at the University of Rochester. And for people who know, know him, he, he's, he's actually an amazing teacher. I was very lucky that my intro to the field is, is one of the greatest teachers and mentors in the field. And he told it like a story with, you know, starting in the thirties and the forties and talking about Kleitman and Dement and all this. And it was, it was this incredible story with this crazy cast of characters. And, 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 and I just remember thinking like, I need to be part of this story. Like this is, this is where I belong. Like this is, this is where my home is. I need to be one of these sleep people. How do I do that? And so I go up to him after the course was over and and I said, can I volunteer in your lab? And he's like, well, I don't have any extra money. I'm like, well, that's okay. I've got a job at the school bookstore because I transferred up there. And he's like, well, that's good because that's my price. I have $0 and that works for me. So I worked in the lab for, you know, I started volunteering and then I turned to an independent study, turned into an honors thesis. And he told me about going to grad school and, you know, and then there's sort of the rest is history. And, um, I, I realized that being a sleep researcher was a job that you could actually have. And yeah. I am grateful every day that it exists. Oh, so pure, yeah. Did, what, so when you went to college originally, Michael, like when you first enrolled or when you left high school, yeah. what, was your, what was your aspirations? What did you want to be? So I, so I couldn't decide between, um, so I, I, my initial thinking was I was either going to be a psych major or a music composition major, which is why I went to University of Rochester because they have the Eastman School of Music. So, so that was that was what I thought I was thought I really wanted to do, um, but uh, I decided that wasn't the career for me, and so I, I, I leaned more into the psych direction because I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that sleep was part of psych, you know, that was. That was that was the path I was going to go. If the sleep class was a biology course, I'd probably end up being a biology. Um, it was just so like I was a psych. I went through psych because you know I wanted to be a sleep researcher, and and that's once I found out that such a thing existed, I knew I knew that was for me. Uh, you're probably the most uh, probably driven person who knew to want to get into sleep from an early age compared to other people. Most people stumble into it by accident. <laughs> You know, uh, like I'm yeah, sure. So people yeah. say, like, why do you study sleep? Mm -hmm. And I say, because it's the coolest thing ever. I mean, it's the coolest <laughs> thing to talk about. I mean, you walk down the street and you, everybody's got a story. The thing about sleep is, it's it's one of the few things that's absolutely universal. Um, it, I mean, it's a lot like food. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's absolutely universal. Everyone has a story, um, and it's 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 all about sort of where people live and you get to talk about all these things. It's, it's great. Yeah. No, you, no, you're, you're right. Yeah. There's nobody's going to say, Oh yeah, sleep. That's interesting, but I don't do that. No, everybody, everybody has to do it at some <laughs> stage. You know? right. even, even if they want to fire for two weeks, it's eventually going to catch up with them by, uh, you know, either voluntary means or involuntary means. They're going to, it's got to going to succumb to it. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. Well, and you can make an impact where, yeah. where, you know, like diet and exercise, it's really important for health. But unlike diet and exercise, it's actually not that hard to change. Um, and, and if you know what you're doing, you can actually make a real big impact in how someone's feeling and, and what their health is and how they're functioning through improving their sleep. And it's just, it's just really rewarding to see it. Yeah, and dramatic changes. Like, it's interesting. 
I often I often have these moments, Michael, and I think everybody has these. You know, you're very busy with work, busy with like you know doing a podcast or blogs or writing stuff and doing research and you know doing different projects, and it's all really interesting. But sometimes you get really overwhelmed and busy, and you think. God, I should cut out something that maybe you know isn't bringing me in money or is not adding to value, adding value, and it's that. But then you you kind of you sit back, and then as you're thinking about that, within 24 hours you get either a phone call or an email, and someone goes, "Oh, I listened to that podcast, I read that blog, I did this, or I remember you spoke at something two years ago, and I just want to let you know it's had a massive impact on my life." And you sit back and you go, "You can't even quantify that value," and it, may, and it <laughs> yeah, really makes a, you want to keep incredible. going. Yeah, yeah. And it could be the simplest of things, like you know, blocking out light, or using a fan, or you know, um, not watching TV before bed, or using a wind down kind of routine or ritual. It could be the simplest of things, and has a massive amount of impact on somebody who could have been struggling, struggling with sleep issues for twenty years. And, and and you know, I've had a lot of patients really frustrated with all of their other health providers that they saw before me, and they're like, "It was that easy? Why didn't I do this ten <laughs> years ago?" <laughs> and I'm like, well, you're here now. <laughs> yeah, you're here for a reason. So, so Michael, yep. recently at World Sleep, which was a um, yeah. a great big conference of over three thousand uh, sleep geeks all getting together to talk about sleep, <laughs> uh, which many people were like, "There's over three thousand of you." That's that's the, that was the most common thing I got asked <laughs> or, or said to me when I got home. So three thousand people still sleep in the world. I thought it was like twenty, but yeah, three thousand of us got together, and there's lots more uh, in Vancouver and. Uh, you kindly, Michael, invited me to stick in a symposium that you were putting together um, on athletes and sleep. But you kicked off that symposium with a very interesting presentation that was slightly um, slightly kind of off-topic for what everybody was talking about, but very relevant. Right. And was kind of a glue that would, um, would put a lot of it together. Um, which so was about so, the so just, just to interject... Slightly off topic from what everyone else is talking about, but still relevant, I think describes my career very well. <laughs> I didn't know whether I was insulting you there or uh, giving you kudos. <laughs> <laughs> so you spoke, Michael, about um, your work with the Olympic uh, Committee and yeah. the issue around mental health. And obviously we know from the general um, sort of population work, the link between sleep, mental health and physical activity, is well-defined, but probably not well, I wouldn't say anywhere it's been well-researched or, or implemented, but this is an area that you've been working on. And um, you might just give us a quick overview of this work that you've been involved in on with the Olympic Committee. Sure. So the, the background of this is that we've known for a long time that sleep is related to mental health um, it, outside of the athletic population. Uh, for example, sleep and depression are, are intimately connected, where insomnia in particular is probably the best predictor of depressed mood. Um, not only is insomnia associated with every single symptom of depression independently, um, it's also associated with the development of depression over time uh, and the recurrence of depression over time. Um, we also know that sleep is, is highly related to anxiety. I mean, everyone knows that a lot of times when you're really stressed out, you can't sleep. Well, when things become a pattern, actually lack of sleep causes worse stress and anxiety and, and, and coping problems during the day, which can lead to more sleep at night. It can be cyclical. Um, sleep is uh, also a part of pretty much every mental health diagnosis 
pretty much everyone carries a sleep disturbance in there. Um, one that's in particular, uh, of particular interest to me is suicide risk. So suicide is a major public health problem. It's actually growing in severity around the world uh, in terms of the, uh, the risk of suicide. In the United States, it is actually the second leading cause of death in every age group between 10 and 34. Um, it, and it's high in other age groups as well. The, the gender gap is narrowing. Um, this is a problem. Um, and there have been dozens of studies now showing that um, sleep disturbances, whether it's shorter sleep duration, uh, insomnia, and nightmares in particular also are associated with increased uh, suicide risk. So if you pool sleep problems and suicide risk, people with sleep problems are about three times as likely to think about suicide as people who don't. Uh, they're also about three times as likely to attempt and about three times as likely to actually die by suicide compared to people who don't have sleep problems. Um, there are possible reasons for this. Um, one of them being that not only the connections with depression, but also the fact that when you're not sleeping well, you don't think clearly, you don't think well, you, you don't see things in perspective. I mean, a lot of people have this experience of being awake in the middle of the night and people don't think clearly. You're usually freaked out about something or, or worried about something and blowing things out of proportion. Uh, and so th there's lots of pathways that might be leading here. So this issue of sleep and mental health is something that's of, of great interest to me because I think it, it plays a role in society and, and it's something where we could really make an impact. Now with athletes, this is a problem where um, a couple of things, not only do we know that athletes in general are set up for poor sleep and, and you've had lots of people talking about that, but also um, athletes are at a particular age often with increased risk for mental health problems. So most athletes, most elite athletes are younger adults. And young adulthood is a, is a prime age for development of depression, suicidality, and, and, and overwork and, and feeling um, overwhelmed. Like this is something that happens in this life stage. And on top of that, um, you have athletes who are under extra pressure. So when you put extra pressure on someone who's already at an at-risk age group, who's already kind of not sleeping and has other things going on, it could be a recipe for disaster. And um, that led, so the work with the Olympic Committee actually started a few years earlier with work with the NCAA here in the U.S., where the NCAA had recognized, um, and, and I actually attribute this to Brian Hainline, the chief medical officer of the NCAA, who came in, and he very quickly recognized that mental health in collegiate student-athletes in the U.S. Was, was a major problem. And he put together a task force uh, that he led um, and that did, a, did all kinds of, uh, of great work. And um, because of some of the work that I'd been doing in mental health, you know, I, I wasn't involved in, in work with athletes before that, but, you know, it was somebody who came up to me at the sleep meeting, asked me a bunch of questions about sleep and mental health. And like, wow, you could talk about pretty much any dimension of sleep and mental health. I'm like, well, cause this is something that's interesting to me. Can you talk about sleep apnea? Can you talk about insomnia? And so like, oh, I got this person you need to talk to. So I talked to somebody who talked to somebody who eventually talked to this person at the NCAA. And they said, you know what? I think we need sleep on this panel. Someone representing sleep needs to be part of this conversation. So, so that's where I started with that. And so um, sleep got included in the mental health best practices that NCAA put out and, and, the, 
and the handbook that they put out called Mind, Body, and Sport. Um, and, and so it became part of that conversation. And when the International Olympic Committee was putting together their first consensus meeting on mental health, I mean, they put together consensus statements about lots of different things, but never mental health before. But the conversation has been changing with athletes, partially because of what the NCAA was doing. But around the world, athletes are, are being more open about mental health issues. Olympians are coming forward with struggles with depression and, and, and some of these other stresses. And the, the IOC wanted to take this issue seriously and use it as a way to promote health and well-being in athletes. And it just so happens that one of the people that they tapped to help put this group together was Dr. Hainline from the NCAA who had done this for them. And so he, um, he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I, again, I think sleep is an important part of the mental health conversation. Uh, we did some great work with NCAA. Can we, can we do some of this with IOC as well? Yeah. And so that's how I got involved mm -hmm. in it. it was actually through Dr. Hainline. And um, so what, it, what ended up happening was for this, uh, for this meeting, before we had this meeting, they, we pulled literally every paper that's ever been published that has anything to do with sleep and athletics. And they wanted me to come in with, with a presentation of what do we know, what do we not know, and then in particular, how is it related to mental health. But sleep was unique in that it's not just about mental health. It's not, just, it's not like the substance use, which, is, you know, it, which isn't just mental health, it's also performance. Well, the same thing with sleep. It's not just mental health, it's also performance. Um, and so we looked through literally everything that's been published, sorted through what were the key findings, and um, put together something to put into the document. And, you know, I had a word limit of how much I could write. Um, and every time I wrote something and I'd send it in to the committee that was, uh, that was deciding what goes in there, they would come back and say, well, yeah, can you talk about this too? And I said, well, there wasn't room for that. They're like, well, write more. We'll expand the sleep section. I'm like, all right. So I go back with that. They're like, well, then what about treatment? I'm like, well, I have no room for that. Like, okay, well, we could write that too. And so, it, so the sleep section grew from, you know, a few hundred words to something that was a little bit longer that encompassed this idea of, of mental health and performance and sleep health, but also sleep disorders and treatments, but like taking treatment into consideration where some of the, some of the treatments, you know, anything sedating might also be performance impairing. So like, what else can you do as an athlete without worrying about performance? What other options are there? So we got to talk about CPAP and got to mention CBTI for insomnia. It was actually a really great opportunity. Um, and then we had a meeting where everyone who worked on all the different sections all sat in a room for a couple of days and we hammered this thing out and then it finally got published. And I'm really proud of the final product or at least my contribution to it because sleeps, you know, sleep is on, at the table. It's there in the document, mm -hmm. even if it's not a sleep statement, the statement itself is taking an official position on the importance of sleep and for health and mental health and mental well-being. Because at the end of the day, you know, athletes are people and yeah. a lot of people are struggling with these mental health issues. And a lot of people look up to athletes for inspiration. And, you know, if athletes are going to be leaders in this way, you know, it's important, A, it's important for them to take care of their own mental health and, and sleep well, and et cetera. But also if they're struggling, 
you know, they should have resources and they should be able to not just say tough it out, you know, actually recognize these are, these are legitimate issues that are worth dealing with, that it's okay to deal with, and it's okay to be honest about. And so, and so when we went to Vancouver, you know, one of the things I presented was the, the story of how this happened, but then also what made it into the document and just talking about how important sleep is, what the rates of sleep problems are, and, and what we can do about it. And hopefully this is something that, um, that gets distributed around and, and starts some conversations in parts of the world that maybe haven't been talking about sleep health. Well, it's interesting, Michael, because um, as you know, I kind of <clears throat> straddle a few worlds. Um, one way, obviously, athletes and sleep and performance, but also I do a lot of work in the occupational health space with companies around consulting to establish programs, look at the relationships between different yeah. disciplines in the health space as well. And I've been involved in this either as a consultant or as a direct leader uh, working inside companies where we've tried probably not very well previously, and I'm going back a few years, where we've tried to establish or communicate the relationship between sleep, physical health, uh, mental health, and diet and nutrition, this kind of, I suppose, holistic approach to, to an individual's health and well-being. And it's very hard to articulate the, the value proposition internally to a business or even to an individual because people tend to look at it in an isolated form. And so when I was sitting to a presentation, I was kind of, I was obviously listening to the part about the athletes, but straight away I was thinking about the similar type of groups where this happens, you know, um, mining, rail, oil and gas, military, where it's not been well done. And recently, and I've spoken about this and I've been critical of it, there's, there was a code of practice in Western Australia here where I live on mental health for people who work in mining, but remote, who flew in, like to do this fly in, fly out, to go away for two weeks and come home for two weeks, go away for a week and come home. And I quote a practice, which was great. On one hand, I applaud them for, for doing it on mental health. But on the other hand, when you search that document, um, you cannot find the word sleep in it. So it's very much yeah. a standalone document where when you were talking, what I could see was this holistic picture about all these contributing factors and, um, you know, that was affecting sleep. So I suppose, Michael... What was it that kind of, was there one or two people that were instrumental in that group that kind of got hooked on this and went, oh, wow, this is what should happen? Or was it just the more you told them, the more people realized the relationship was there and hence why you were asked to write more into it? Or were you someone like me who just pushed your point too much? <laughs> or a well, bit of both? <laughs> I, I think, well, well, in answer to the question, I think it just had to do with the Sleep is just one of those things where it's something that everyone can kind of agree on. Um, and, and this sort of speaks to what you were saying before in that if you want to send a health promotion message, if you want to send a health promotion message, sleep is a way to do it. But what if you don't care about health? You only care about productivity. Well, you want to, you want to send a productivity message? Sleep is a way to do it. You want to deal with things like organizational effectiveness, sleep is a way to do it. You want to do it with employee morale, sleep is a way to do it. So sleep, because it's so universal, it hits on all these different areas. Yeah. And, um, and so in this, in this athletics context, one of the things that I've noticed is that people think about sleep in terms of sleep deprivation and physical performance. But then when you start digging in and you start showing them how deep this rabbit hole of sleep goes, and it's actually connected to everything, you, they see that it's connected to the things that they care about. No matter who it is, 
the thing that they care about is connected to sleep um, somehow, usually. And which makes it a, kind of an easy sell with, with groups like this because they realize how important it is and how it's one of these factors that links all of these important things together and it's modifiable um, as opposed to other things that are just intellectual. Um, and so what happened was we can say, yeah, you know, here are all these different topics we're talking about with mental health. Here's how sleep's related to every single one of them. Um, and so I think that's what where you get some buy-in, where you can actually see that it's whatever outcome it is you care about, sleep is probably relevant. Um, mm. does, it, does it, is sleep associated with change in those things? This is where we need more research to understand how to leverage this relationship. Um, knowing that the relationship is there is where we're starting and, and it's probably there. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's why I think that you, you maybe saw that in the presentation, cause that's where I'm coming from in that athletics, you know, a athletes are great to work with. And one of the reasons why I really enjoy working with athletes is because you can really make a difference in people who really need it and who can really benefit. But in my mind, ath athletics, athletes and sport, it's essentially, and, and people might yell at me for saying this, and this might be controversial, but in my mind, Sport is essentially an occupational group. You talk about yeah. athletes like you talk about minors, uh, like you talk about truck drivers. Um, and there's different kinds that have different sorts of exposures. But really what it is, it's a, it's, it's a group that has a certain set of environmental, social, and other constraints that not only play a role in performance, but also in their ability to, to get sleep. I mean, the military is very similar. Yes. where it's, it's groups of people that have these sets of constraints where sleep gets constrained, among other things, and it impacts the outcomes that they care about. And it can play a role in things like safety and injuries um, and health. And so, so I've been treating sport very much like an like a, a occupational group that has a specific needs and specific constraints. And... Um, <laughs> And is therefore worthy of study, which is another thing where research in sleep and athletics has, has grown a lot in the last few years, but it's been growing from very little uh, yeah. because getting interest in doing research in sport has been very tough from the sleep community. Now you, I'm going to, um, so I want to hit two points here, Michael, because this is really interesting. You've hit on two really interesting ones. So first of all, I think you're right about treating like an occupational group. So in the occupational health and hygiene space and industry, we have a terminology, I don't know if you've ever come across it, called similar exposure groups. And what we basically do is we group people together, as the word suggests, have similar exposure groups. And we use that then from a hygiene perspective to monitor the impact of what they may be um, being exposed to, whether it be noise, dust, you know, silica, asbestos, whatever it might be. So for example, um, somebody, so you might have a big organization, but the guys who work in let's say the engine room of a ship they're like they're similar to the guys who work in a power station so they're a similar exposure right. group you might have uh, geologists who work out in the field do an exploration and they're similar to maybe geologists who work inside a mine and do an in mine geology so they're very similar so one's exploration but one's in a pit as an example you might have people who work in a plant in a in a around planting machinery and processing, 
and they're in aluminium, but you might have someone who does similar in copper as well. So they might be kind of a, like a similar exposure group, but there might be some differences in them. So you kind of group people into these groups. So lots of companies that are kind of safety critical will have these SEGs or similar exposure groups grouped in for occupational hygiene and monitoring. So you can create data sets, they can look at the exposure, and then they can, can target like health improvement programs with that data to, to drive down you know negative outcomes and improve sort of quality of, of life for people ensure people are not being adversely affected from that as well and that's exactly what i always do michael as well to your point is if i'm working with athletes exactly. i talk about what what happens with high level military and um, you know what happens with people in like maybe adventure racing whatever it might be if i'm talking with a rugby team and similarly as well if i'm talking with somebody who's in a safety critical role in a business they'll often ask me you know what does a formula one driver do what does a football player do and so because they're they are a similar exposure group or a similar occupational group and i think you're dead right you have to treat them like that but then within the athletic groups i think you can further divide it so you can look at exactly. contact sports you know versus combat sports you can um change the grouping depending on time of day so when we come back and we look at mental health and sleep problems it's going to be very different for a team-based environment who are playing you know, one game a week, um, let's say like some like football or rugby, but the game is late at night. So they're going to have one bad night of sleep. Whereas in baseball, somebody's going to be constantly traveling and having exactly. sleep and lots of games. So we have athletes, but now we further divide it into frequent travelers or games or whatever it might be. And we have these sub and um, similar exposure groups. And that's the thing. All those have to be treated differently as well, because whilst they're similar, there is slight differences in them as well. So we do it based upon the occupational factors. So I would probably look more at jet lag strategies and travel fatigue from pilots and look at that group when I'm talking to baseball players compared to like NFL. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, I, th I think that's exactly right. I think it's, it's, it, these are, these are universal, these are applicable exposures and constraints that, that different groups face. It's not that, and athletes aren't all the same, you know, they different types of athletes have different types of, exposures that that play a role in sleep and, and there's things that we can learn from that it's not just oh athletes are special because they're all outliers and they're all in peak performance it's like no they they're some athletes are essentially shift workers some athletes are essentially mm. long-haul travelers some athletes are essentially laborers yeah. you know and and you know who wake up early and and do lots of heavy physical exertion early in the morning. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things we can learn and understand to not only apply to athletes and and as a group that you know that society models after in a lot of ways, but also they're a group that's at risk that we can also use what we know from other occupations to help. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing, Michael, as well as um. It was a, we had a very interesting conversation. I don't know if you I don't know if you were in a room when myself and Charles Samuels were presenting. I think you might be at a mm -hmm. different symposium. Were you in that room that day at World Sleep? No. Yes. You were. But I. You but. Were. but oh. Yes, it was a long week. It was a long week, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so in that presentation, I don't know if you if, if you recall uh, towards the end, and we had a little panel. Oh, you were there. You were. You were sitting on the panel with us. Sorry. Came up and I thought it was really interesting because a lot of people came into that symposium who weren't classic sort of sleep researchers but athletes, which was great. And um, to, yeah. to see our, our sort of fellow sleep researchers come in and, and see what we do with athletes. But I found in that room on that day, and I get this as well of people on the street, 
that have this idea that, you know, people like myself and yourself, Michael, are walking around with multi-million dollar funding uh, for saving resources. <laughs> and some of the questions was really interesting, like, you know, uh, have you looked at adventure risk? Have you looked at endurance? We're like, no. Well, why not? Well, we don't have any money to do that. Well, why don't you just apply for a grant? And I think Charles Samuels was going, you know, there, there is no grant. There is no money. There is no funding. And this lady was saying, but you, surely there must be something. And Charles was explaining, like, you know, I've got funding for, you know, population health. So I kind of, you know, use creative sort of ways to do that, to translate that, med- that those findings into the general population. And it's the same here in Australia as well. And then we got bailed up outside the door by people. Remember Charles just trying to say, there's no fucking money. That's what I read. He was like, there's no money. There's not multi-million dollars out here for people to get. Yeah. I mean, people so people surprised. think athletics, and they yeah. yeah, people think athletics, and they think that there's lots of money thro- thrown around. I mean, there's money, but it's for other things, um, and that's okay. Uh, it's just that okay, if I were going to go after funding for this, which I have, you know, one thing you can go from funding from is some of the athletics organizations. So NCAA funds some research. Um, some of the athletic conferences here have some research grants. Um, they're usually not very large. I mean. At least in the U.S., you know, research grants can be very, you know, can can be very research can be very expensive to do. Yeah. And actually, the largest cost in research that people don't understand is just people. You yeah. know, so let's say, for example, I have somebody on staff who runs the study. Well, who's paying the, the if the grant is paying their salary? That's that's a lot of money plus benefits for a year's worth of work. I mean, that's that's just, and that's just one person. And if you want to um, have people involved in your study. You have to pay them. Okay, you want to pay someone a couple hundred bucks to do a thing, and you want to do that for a hundred people. Well, there's five figures right there. I mean, so yeah. so research itself can be very expensive. Um, you can do a lot on a little, but that can only take you so far. Um, you run into walls, and and getting larger grants, the stakes are very high, and that they're very hard to get. I mean, we we. We try and get them here, and um, usually the funding rates, at least in the U.S., it's not unusual to see pay lines at like you know, but only the top ten percent of grants may be getting funded, or maybe even less. So you have to make it past ninety percent of all the other submissions to get a decent size. And studying athletes hasn't been a, a, something that's been seen as a high risk group, or or you know, a high priority for public health because it's seen as it's a small group that might not be at risk for poor health. And so it might be hard to justify. But I think the tide is turning. And I think that's what you and I both witnessed in that room with with traditional sleep researchers being saying, essentially, this is an interesting question. Someone should be going after this. This is justifiable. And I think that's different than it was five, 10 years ago where people would write off athletes as this as this group that wasn't scientifically interesting it might be interesting from a public health and a sociological uh perspective but not from a scientific perspective and i think that's starting to change um and and i really i really enjoyed that and i really felt like that was some real important validation saying that here are some interesting scientific questions why haven't you asked it's like well no one's been funding this work but I think that the, the conversation is changing to the point where maybe they will start. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And Michael, to that point as well, like, you know, like 
for me personally, and I know other people like this, like I don't get paid for any research personally, and I'm not having a whinge yeah. about this or crying about this, but I, I, I have an adjunct position no. that's voluntary, and any funding I do for studies or studies, that I'm running a couple of studies at the moment, I'm either um, co-supervising PhD students or I'm running a couple of studies with my business at the moment, and they're funded out of business. So if I have spare cash to the side right. and there's interest in projects, I do that. And some of the other researchers who, um, some of the other consultants that work with me have academic appointments too. And they're like, oh, let's do this. But it's all voluntary. Like there's, if we quantify it, you know, I would say there's probably been in the last year, probably between three or four of us, probably nearly $100,000 worth of, you know, lost salaries, if you want to say, has gone into research. But it's interesting that people think yeah. because you have an academic position or you're a professor or you have a PhD that you're driving a Ferrari and the government is pumping millions into your bank yeah, account right. to do research, you know. And um so, no, yeah, I mean, if, if I told a, a, a full-time PhD researcher how much... So I've gotten some grant funding to do some of this work, but the grants I've, I've gone after, the grants that have been out there are pretty small. Mm. And, and like if I showed people, this is how much money we've gotten to do all of this stuff that we've done, you know, usually the reaction is, well, that's why nobody does it. Because, <laughs> you know, you have to really be passionate about it or else it, it's... The money's not worth it, you know, so you, you have to be really passionate about this and really care to, to you know, stretch these dollars as much as you can um, to be able to do it. And you know, hopefully, yeah, hopefully the tide will turn. But, you know, I'm not the, the work with, with athletes that I'm doing isn't because it's actually a very highly fundable area. It's because I mean, I'm, to be honest, the reason that I'm, I'm doing this work with athletes, it's because this is a group not only can we actually learn from that can apply to the general population. If, we, if I can get an athlete who's overscheduled and stressed out and has to perform at peak all the time and they're not sleeping well and they don't have any time to sleep, if I can get them to sleep more and show that their performance is improved even though they're already at peak, I can take that out into the community and there's millions of other people who can benefit from that. But at the same time, athletes themselves, they're struggling. A lot of them, a lot of them are doing great. A lot of them are doing fine. But also a lot of them, just like everybody else, they're struggling with finding enough time, finding balance, um, and, and, and making it through the day and staying awake. And this is a group of people who, if I slowed down by 2%, I won't notice. But if they slow down by 2%, it could mean the difference between whether or not they have a career. Yeah. or whether or not they get hurt. And so it's actually really rewarding to work with athletes because you can really make a difference. And you can actually, at least from a sleep perspective, you can actually improve someone's life pretty dramatically. So oh, not wow. only is it scientifically interesting to me, it's also, you know, I feel like I can actually make a difference where it matters with actual people. And so that's why I do it, not because it's fundable yet, though, you know, any day now, like maybe we'll we'll hit on one of these grants we keep writing, but we'll see. Yeah. I, like I said to people as well, if I wanted to be rich, I would have went and you know studied medicine and been a plastic surgeon, um, <laughs> right? In, in, a, in a posh suburb, but anyway. So, Mike, with the work with the mental health um, area, one of the one of the questions or one of the points I get thrown at me a lot in industrial settings is, yeah, I know what you're saying that mental health issues might be more prevalent in you know military or mining or rail, but isn't that just the same as the general general population statistics, aren't we just saying 10% are the same as here? So it's not really a problem? So that's a question. That's a was that the same in athletes or was it actually 
was it based upon you know sort of data and research that was said no it's actually quite higher so there's there's relatively little work looking at the prevalence of mental health symptoms in athletes compared to non-athletes. And and actually, I mean, it seems like overall athletes are in slightly better mental health than non-athletes. I mean, being an athlete is good for you. I mean, Mm -hmm. physical activity is good for you. Um, Being somebody who's performing well and taking care of their body, I mean, it's good for you. Uh, In general, what's interesting is that um, overall, mental health seems to be on average better in people who are athletes versus people who aren't. It's not that being an athlete will make your mental health worse than if you weren't. It's that it, it's not, it's a different message. It's not like um, athletes are all depressed and anxious and, and miserable. No, um, but they do have high rates of these things. So does the general population. Um, to be to be fair, but athletes the, the the rates aren't that much lower, and and what's different with athletes is the pathway there might be slightly different. Um, where in some degree, some of the risk factors for poor mental health in athletes get exaggerated, just like some of the protective factors also kind of get exaggerated. Where you have some social support from your team, and you have. Um, uh, you, you probably have a better diet or, or you at least have better exercise routines and things. So these things that are protective are exaggerated, but also some of the risks are, can be exaggerated too, such as pressure to perform, um, needing to be constantly on alert, um, hyper arousal, like some of these other things and having to, to be, um, performing at different times of day. I mean, these are things that are not unique to athletes, but exist within athletes. I mean, there's a lot, like you, we were saying before about other groups, other people struggle with these same things. It's just that athletes struggle with them too. And they struggle with them in this combination. And they're a group that, that deserves some help that we can help. It doesn't mean we help anyone any less. It doesn't yeah. mean like we don't have to also focus on people in mining or people in aviation or people in retail. Um, it just means they're people too, and they struggle too, uh, and they struggle with some of the same things that everyone else struggles with in maybe a somewhat unique combination, but, um, but they struggle too. And actually, we presented some data at the sleep meeting last year when we looked at a national sample of collegiate student-athletes in the U.S., because this was the largest sample we could find, um, of a total of about 100,000 college students with about 8,000 student-athletes. And we presented this at the sleep meeting. What we found was, similarly to what other people found, the, the people who were athletes had slightly better mental health across every symptom, pretty much. But when we looked at the correlation between sleep and mental health in this group, the correlation was slightly stronger in the athletes, which went to show that not only were they impacted by sleep, just like everyone else was in terms of mental health, but actually they might be slightly more sensitive where the, the impact of lack of sleep on mental health and athletes versus non-athlete college students might be slightly higher um, because they might be a little more sensitive to sleep loss where, where the impacts of sleep loss might more directly relate to their mental health. Who knows? Not sure. This is a, this is a first time looking at something like this. But I, I think this is an important story, and, it's, and I think you raised the important point that 
Yeah, I mean, athletes aren't the only ones with sleep issues. They're not the only ones with mental health issues. Um, and actually, they might have slightly better mental health than the, than the random person on the street because of, of the way they take care of themselves, at least physically. Yeah. But still, the rates are high. And they're higher than a lot of people think, just like they're higher in the population than a lot of people think. Yeah. It is interesting when we look at general population and sort of work, and then you make that inference then to athletes. And the classic example that I found in my sort of PhD work was was looking at the prevalence of sleep disorders in athletes, which to my surprise hadn't been really well defined. No. Nobody had looked at even in-lab PSG, you know, level one studies. And we, we put 25 rugby players through. And rugby players, kind of similar to NFL players, big guys, um, you know, high BMI, which is obviously well correlated in the general population of sleep apnea. You know, a BMI of greater than 31. Definitely like, you know, male, 90, uh, 31 BMI, 90% chance of having sleep apnea. We didn't find any of that in rugby players. Zero. Even Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so we even thought then, oh, well, maybe the higher the BMI, the higher the chance. No, nothing. Uh, we thought the forwards who were the bigger guys would have more prevalence than the backs who were the smaller guys. Now, I'm saying that the smaller guys were still like, you know, probably 210 pounds and six foot one or six foot two. They were the smaller guys. But no, we actually found the opposite. It, it, it wasn't weight dependent. It wasn't age dependent. We looked at <laughs> stuff like... Um, you know, the, the girth or the circumference of the neck, which is another risk factor. Zero relationship as well. We looked at Berlin questionnaires for sleep, uh, risk of sleep apnea. No correlation again. So all the kind of general population methods that we use to assess the potential prevalence or the actual prevalence had absolutely no validity in athletes. And so taking general I mean, it population... It just goes to show that methods, things are complicated. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Exactly. And then a similar study, which used level two PSG, from John Paul Kay over on the east coast of Australia looking at rugby league players, so a very similar sport but slightly different. He actually found the very same thing, but what he did differently was he measured the body fat. And so he found there was a relation with body fat and sleep apnea. So it's not so much the mass of your body, but it was the body fat and where you carried it. So he actually found that the body fat, you know, around the stomach area was basically, that was the biggest predictor of sleep apnea in an athlete. Well, I think the football player, the American football data mirrors some of that, where when you screen for um, football, screen for sleep apnea in, in active football players, the, the, what looks like risk is way higher than the actual risk. The, the, the risk you see in football players is higher maybe than the general population, but actually it's not as high as the screening instruments would suggest. It's showing that you know, that the normal risk factors don't work quite the same way. But what's interesting is there's a couple studies that were done where then they then once the players retired and they didn't lose the weight and the muscle turned into fat, that's where all the and so then they all had sleep apnea and, that, and that's where yeah. the risk really emerged. And I think you make the important point that that, you know, <laughs> these, these things are complicated and and we can learn a lot uh, about how risk works uh, by studying athletes irrespective of, of effects on athletics, but it also uh, impacts how, what recommendations we make where, you know, with athletes, if we just look at sleep apnea risk based on BMI, well, you know, that might work for truck drivers, um, but it probably doesn't work as well for rugby players or football players. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's really interesting and, and nuanced. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating field. 
Michael, I want to change tack here um, for the last part of the, our conversation today because there's a paper that you um, had published this year that kind of interests me because, um, well, number one, industry keeps changing. And yep. uh, number two, I was in Vancouver, which has got lots of homelessness and drug use on the street. And then probably the final part is we've, the, of my reason to ask this is here in Perth in Western Australia, I've kind of seen a, an increase in homelessness on the street due to uh, shelters closing down and so on. And you had a paper this year that you were part of called Employment, Insecurity and Sleep Disturbance. So many people at the moment yeah. are talking about, oh, there's lots of redundancies, there's change in the industry, whatever industry it might be. So professionals are constantly living with this kind of, you know, threat of redundancy and not sleeping well and anxiety and there might be kind of politics going on at work. Then you've got other people who may have lost their job and they go onto the street and people like Russell Foster have looked at, you know, uh, mental health and sleep and homeless people and there's been some work done in that. Um, so it's quite an interesting area that people think, oh, because you don't have a job or you're on the street, you're just lazy and sleeping and you're not actually contributing. Um, so I'm kind of interested right. in, in this piece of work that you've done and if you were able to shed some light on the, what you found with this paper. Sure. Um, so first, I need to give credit to Terence Hill, who's a faculty member here at the U of A in sociology, um, who's, who has an interest in, in sleep and sociology. And he actually um, did, did the work to get a hold of these data sets and, and ran the primary analyses. But basically what this was, is this were data from Europe. Um, where they looked at, uh, there was a survey in Europe called the European Working Conditions Survey. And this was data from about 25,000 people of working age in Europe from 31 countries. And one of the things that we looked at in the paper was, you know, one of the things they asked was just general sleep problems. They didn't have a lot of detail about sleep, but they looked in general uh, reporting insomnia or, or general sleep difficulties in the last year. And uh, basically what we showed was that the people who felt that their employment was insecure uh, were much more likely to be reporting sleep problems, which, again, if you tell someone on the street that, look, if you're afraid of, of, of losing your job, you'll also lose sleep at night, everyone's going to say we needed a study to prove that. Um, and I'd say, well, yes, A, because we don't know anything until, you know, there's lots of things that seem obvious that, that aren't, but it's not just about does that effect exist? What was particularly interesting here, first of all, was quantifying how much of an impact is it? And basically what we showed was there was about a 50% um, increased likelihood of poor sleep in those people. So, so whatever their base rate of sleep problem was in the people who had more secure employment, you multiply that by 1.5, and that's the rate of sleep problems in the people with the more insecure uh, uh, employment. The other thing was that um, the universality of it was really interesting, where because we had 31 different countries, we were able to look to see, does this relationship exist at about this magnitude wherever in the world you are, because, or at least wherever in Europe you are, because all of these different countries have different economies. They have different relationships with employers and employees and different employment laws and different social safety nets. But what was interesting is pretty much every single country that was involved in this analysis showed the same relationship. 
So what this study did is it looked at data from a large survey called the European Working Conditions Survey that was done in about 2010, because that was the data that was available. Uh, And it came from data from 31 countries representing about 25,000 people between the ages of 25 and 65 in Europe. Um, And of all of these countries that were involved, uh, they, they asked about difficulty sleeping, and they also asked about um, aspects of their employment. So, um, and what was interesting was, so this, this issue of employment insecurity was related to sleep difficulties. Now, it's not terribly interesting that employment insecurity was related to sleep difficulties. I think most people would guess that, you know, if you're, if you're in a situation of, of insecure employment, then you're probably going to be losing sleep at night. That's that, that could be guessed. But quantifying that relationship was really important, where what we showed was that, um, that for each unit increase in employment insecurity uh, on this scale, um, it increased your likelihood of sleep problems by 47%, so about 50%. So what that means is that each level up you went, the likelihood that you would be having difficulty sleeping went up by 50% more than people who didn't. Um, so the more employment insecurity, uh, the, the, the more employment insecurity you were experiencing, the worse your sleep was, and it was a pretty large effect. The other thing that was particularly interesting about the study was that it included a large number of countries all over Europe. And these are countries that represent a really wide range of economies, employment situations, social safety nets, et cetera. All the sorts of things that you would think um, play a role in the relationship between sleep and employment. But what was really interesting was pretty much across the board, the, the relationship was remarkably consistent. It didn't matter whether you were in... Finland or Sweden or the UK or um, Slovakia or Hungary or Ireland, Ireland was in here too, Um, it it didn't matter. The relationship was still consistent across pretty much every country. Um, There were only a couple uh, that weren't. Um, But other other than a couple of outliers, pretty much every single country uh, in Europe had an association um, that was of, of relatively similar magnitude. When we're talking about sleep problems, Michael, are we talking more about people like, you know, you know, maybe types of insomnia, like waking up in the middle of the night, wake maintenance insomnia, not being able to go back to sleep, waking up too early, or are we seeing more kind of clinical sleep disorders being manifested, such as sleep apnea or REM behavior disorder, more these, or was it more kind of behavioral-based ones? Yeah, this was this was looking at more symptoms. So they were looking at issues like um is, is do you have difficulty falling asleep? Um, do you wake up in the middle of the night? Things like that. Um, so those were the sorts of questions that that went into this, um, and um, and so it wasn't necessarily sleep disorders, especially. So one of the things you see in these larger surveys is a trade-off between generalizability and precision, where you usually lack precision to what aspects of sleep really are being represented physiologically and 
getting a swath of the population that actually tells you what the real world is doing. And mostly because of cost and effort and feasibility, it's hard to get. But you either get highly detailed information on a relatively small number of people, or you get vague information on a relatively large number of people. So, yeah. it's, <laughs> so the way I see it is you can, you can get a clear picture, but it's zoomed in really far, and, and you, it's hard to establish context, but you have clarity. As opposed to if you zoom out, the picture gets very fuzzy. It's true. It's still true. It's just less clear. Uh, and that's sort of the trade-off that you run into. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, it goes back to our initial point about funding and so on and what you can do. I know from, I got that question actually at World Sleep on a poster was, oh, you've only had, tw- you only had 25 people do overnight PSG. That was quite low. I was like, actually, that's quite high. Show me know? a bigger... Yeah, show me a bigger study in rugby players with polysomnography. Seriously. That, that, that's exactly what I said to the guy, and he started laughing. Oh, I don't know. I said exactly. You know, I said, and I had the same debate with him as well, and he, he kind of laughed and agreed with me. Yeah, you're right. You know, you know the same thing. Like, you can get thousands or hundreds of players to fill in surveys. You know, so it depends which way you want to go. Broad and wide, which I think those studies are very important to kind of look at the order of magnitude of the problem and maybe direct some of the future research um, or... So, so one study we did that actually blended objective measures with surveys was um, one of the studies we did here. It was, you know, it wasn't thousands of people. It was about 200 people um, who were who were college athletes, where we gave them a sleep screening back at the start of the semester, and then we actually were able to go into all of their medical records uh, for the subsequent year. Um, and so the medical records were actually quite detailed in terms of every injury, every, every issue they had. And one of the things we were able to show, even with the, the screening instruments, it was a one-item sleepiness measure and the, inso- the seven-item insomnia severity index. The values on those predicted incident concussions over the subsequent year better than concussion history or what sport they played or gender or any of those other risk factors. Um, and, and so that was a way where even a very broad-based screening um, was actually really useful in predicting risk. I mean, we need to replicate this because um, it, it would be interesting to see if this could actually be a really useful way to maybe see who's at risk of developing concussions more than just what we normally look at. But that's a way where you can use an even broad screening measure um, in combination with more more precise data um, to get at a really important outcome. Excellent. So, Michael, um, oh, for our listeners, that paper will be available in the show notes as well. That full paper is freely available, as is uh, yeah. Michael has done on the mental health. And, and that was led by... Yeah. I should mention that that concussion paper was led by Adam Rakes, who is a postdoc here at the University of Arizona. Um, and so, yeah, so he's the lead author on that. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, it was it was really interesting to see. Yeah, so we'll put those those papers and uh, mental health one of the athletes into the show notes as well, that people can freely access also. So, Michael, before we wrap up, um, what's next for you? You have this varied research background. What's What are you looking at now? What's the problems you're digging <laughs> into? And... Um, what wild and wonderful research are you going to do in the next six months to a year? So um, the one project that we're very heavily involved in right now is we're looking at, um, so we're, we're 
in the middle of it right now, um, but it's going to be ramping up even further, is we're looking at sleep at the intersection between uh, social, behavioral, and psychological factors and uh, cardiovascular and metabolic risk at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, where we're down at the border, we're collecting data from people out and partnered with the community to try and understand what is the role of sleep in relation to to health and and how if we were going to design a healthy sleep strategy uh, to deal with some of the stress and other things going on at the border, how would we do that? But right now we're looking at you know what is the complex relationship of sleep duration and quality and sleep apnea. Um, with stress and health and, and all these things at the border. So that's one thing we're doing that, that I'm really interested in. Um, and then the other thing, one, one other thing that we'll, that hopefully we'll be working on in the next year is we've got some ideas on how to get people in the real world to get more sleep, even if they feel like they're too busy or they can't. Um, and we have a couple of strategies that we're working on getting some preliminary data on. Um, because we have a lot of interventions for things like insomnia and sleep apnea and other sleep disorders, but, and we have sleep hygiene for just sort of general sleep tips, but what about people who can't get enough sleep and they don't know what to do about it, but it might be impacting their health and functioning. So I'm really interested in helping to develop some of these strategies and testing them more. Uh, and some of them using some novel technology, um, or some other platforms to see if we can actually scale something that actually makes an impact. And what I like there, Mike, as well, about some of the research that we're undertaking is it's, uh, like you said at the start, it's in these real-life, real-world examples, and it's sort of, whilst it might have a lot of contributing factors and lots of issues around it, it is very interesting, such as looking at, you know, sleep around the border areas between uh, Mexico and, and the U.S. These are fascinating questions that I, I love to hear, and, um, you know, really interesting as opposed to lab st studies. Now, look, lab studies, I'm not knocking them, I think they're great, and there's no, they're important. Really it's very exciting. important. But every step in the process is important. I mean, it's a proof of concept. You need the proof of concept to go into the laboratory. And you need the laboratory study in isolation to know what processes are involved and how. And then you need the select group to see whether it bears out in reality. And then you need the, the more community-focused work to show whether under real world constraints, how this holds up. And then you need the population level stuff. Like all these steps in the process are all important. None is, I would argue that none is more important than another one. It's just, they have different roles to play. Michael, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Um, I could talk for hours, but we're a busy man and it's just gone five o'clock there in Arizona. So it is time to go home and get to dinner and uh, wind down for sleep. So <laughs> I don't want to uh, put you off course. And uh, we're about to kick off our day here in Western Australia. But um, Michael, if people want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to follow your work, get in contact with you, uh, follow you on Twitter? What, what sort of details can we, can we look out for? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find online, michaelgrander.com. Everything is there. You can follow me at Michael uh, at Michael Grander on Twitter. Um, and uh, if you just Google my name, I'm pretty easy to find, but I'm sure you can give people a link. Uh, I, uh, I, try and, I try and update stuff regularly uh, and, and provide posts pretty often, keep people in the loop. Um, that would be great. Yeah, and look, I would say to our listeners, if you are looking for someone to follow on Twitter to find out all the latest and greatest news of 
sleep and particularly the applied sleep world, follow Michael because uh, he's one of my sources. He trawl and through libraries or PubMed. I just follow Michael and he does the work for me. So um, <laughs> use these resources to your advantage. <laughs> so um, yeah, definitely. But we'll put some links in the show notes as well so people can get in contact with Michael at Michael's personal website or your position page with the University of Arizona there as well. Um, so great thank you very much that's great michael listen um thanks very much have a great evening really appreciate your time all right thank you so thank you to michael for that episode really interesting conversation as always um really appreciate him making the time to have a chat with me so don't forget to check out the show notes there where you can follow michael or get in contact with him as always you can follow us at sleepforperformance.com.au on the website there. Don't forget to sign up for your monthly newsletters, blogs, and information. And we're going to have some interesting stuff coming out next year. We're going to start running some free webinars across the year as well. So if there is a topic that you would like us to look at for a webinar, uh, please let us know. Okay, until next month, sleep well. <laughs>